You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for your word. Again, we come each and every Sunday to delight in what you have spoken to us in the pages of Scripture and to delight in the revelation of the perfect truth who is Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the truth and that we can know him. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to the truth, and we pray that you would continue now to open our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to see and hear the, the meaning of this text as you have intended it, and that our hearts might be changed by coming face to face with what you have written. Thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and that it is clear and that we can know it. And we ask your blessing upon this time that your spirit would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide. And we ask your blessing upon it in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This is my command, this I command you, that you love one another. And we're turning a bit of a, a corner here today as we start in verse 12. Uh, we're no longer talking about the vine and the branches analogy in verses 1 through 11. And now we're talking about love and hatred. Uh, verses 12 through 17 talk about love. And verses 18 through the end of the chapter speak about hatred. Verse 18 begins, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And verse 18 through the end of the chapter describe the hatred that the world has for Christ, the hatred that the world has for us why they hate us, the reality of that hatred, how we are to handle that hatred. And verses 12 through 17 speak of love, the love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that he has for us and how that is demonstrated, and the love that we as believers are to have for one another. And it is a new a new subject in the sense that we're no longer talking about the vine and the branches analogy specifically, but it is not a new subject in the sense that the Lord Jesus is not bringing up something that is entirely new. In fact, earlier this evening, back in chapter 13, he had spoken of the responsibility the disciples had to love one another. So we're talking about love and hatred, and I want to draw your attention to some structure that is here in the text. In verse 12, we have that command. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now look down at verse 17. That command is repeated. This I command you, that you love one another. So verse 12 and verse 17 are the commandments to love. And in between those two commandments, sandwiched between those, that commandment repeated, are examples and illustrations of divine love and reasons that we are to love one another. So that's what we're going to be looking today at the command to love in verse 12 and an example of love in verse 13. The command to love and an example of love. Beginning verse in ver- first in verse 12, the command to love. But now I'm going to, sorry, I'm wrong column there. This, I, my, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. That is the command. Now again, it's not something new. Earlier this evening, back in chapter 13, and you can turn back there if you want to verses 34 and 35, Jesus had already told his disciples the same commandment. 
He said to them in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the reason for that command to love in chapter 13 is kind of is kind of seen by its context. The reason for it is kind of illustrated by its context. Jesus had just told them that there was a traitor among them who was going to betray them and was going to betray him specifically. And after telling them who, that that traitor was there and after telling them uh, who that traitor was, at least he revealed it to Peter and to John, he commands them to love one another. Why the command to love there? Well, we might say that knowing that there was a traitor among them and and the, and the aftermath of Judas betraying them, those disciples might begin to suspect one another. They might begin to withhold love from one another. I think after being hurt by somebody that we had been close with for three years, they might withhold that love. And Jesus doesn't want them to do that. He doesn't want them to hold each other in suspicion. After telling them about the traitor, he wants to make sure that these 11 men, that they love one another. Well, similarly, back in, now in chapter 15, verse 12, this commandment that, that, that I love you, that you, that I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, in the context, the reason for love is even more clear. Look at verse 18, because the world is going to hate us. And so since the world is going to hate us, since the world is going to pour out on Christians such vehement hatred, and really they're pouring it out on Christians, not because they hate us, but because they hate the one that we represent. That's the point of verses 18 and following. It is really the, the Lord Jesus that the world hates. And since He is not here for them to persecute and to kill and to hate, then they pour that hatred out on us. In light of the fact that the world is going to hate us, it's incumbent upon us that we love one another. Because if we don't love one another, where are we going to turn to for love? To the world? No, if we don't love one another, we're going to remain unloved. Because the world certainly is not going to look at us unloved Christians and say, well, look at it, they don't even love one another. Well, we'll just love on them. The world's not going to do that. The world hates us. And so in light of the fact that the world is going to hate us and that we ought to expect hatred and hostility and vitriol from the world, then this command that we love one another. And it is a command, by the way. This is, this is the commandment from the Lord, from the Master of the Church, from the High King of Heaven, that we love one another. He's telling, this, he's telling us this not because this is going to make our lives easier, not because it's going to make us feel better, but it is a command. And so it comes with all of the expectation and all of the authority of heaven. And it is just as much a command to be obeyed as anything written in stone before the Israelites. It is a command. And Jesus repeats it twice. This is my command that you do this. And this is important. And it is repeated often in the New Testament. In fact, we find that the apostles made much of this command to love one another. I'll give you a few. I'll just give you a selection of verses from the writings of Peter and Paul and John. And this is not all of the verses, but listen to how they sort of work out this command and the implications of this command to love one another. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says to owe no, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And I think it was Augustine who says, uh, love one another and then do what you want. Said, wow, I do what I want. Yeah, if you love one another, if that's the first commandment, if you're loving everybody perfectly, then you can do whatever you want. Because guess what? Then you'll never sin against anybody. And you will never sin because you're loving everybody else the way that you should love them. And that's Paul's idea there. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If we could just live by that dictate, to love one another, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and to love our neighbors as we love the Lord our God, if we could just live by that dictate, then we would need no other commandment because we would fulfill every obligation to ourselves and to others. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, 
Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And I love the way Peter connects our fervently loving one another from the heart with that recognition that we have been born again. It is only those who are born again that can fervently love one another from the heart. And the context in 1 Peter chapter 1 is very similar in tone to the context of John chapter 15. Peter is writing to Christians who were facing the hostility of the world and they were suffering persecution and they were suffering unjustly. And so he says to the Christians, love one another. Because in the midst of a hostile world, this command to love one another becomes all that more pressing. And I don't know if you've been reading the headlines or not, but it doesn't sound like the world loves us very much, does it? And that's only going to get worse. As the hostility of the world increases towards those who are truly Christians, this command that we love one another is going to become more and more pertinent and necessary for us as Christians. First John 2, 9 and 10. John is often called the apostle of love, uh, not because he was some uh, hippie, liberal, effeminate man who just loved to love everybody, but because he writes a lot about love. The apostle John seemed to understand this commandment and take this as a personal thing uh, uh, for himself. First John 2, 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You want to know the test of whether somebody is a true Christian or not? Does he love his brother in Christ? Does he love somebody who is a believer? If one does not love other believers, he's not a believer. Because the one who is born of God loves others who are born of God. First John 3, 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the last one, First John 5, 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So this is a prominent theme in the New Testament that we love one another. And that we, we pour out that love and we express that love in so many different ways. Why does the New Testament repeat that? Why is that so prominent in the New Testament? I would suggest it's for a couple of different reasons. First, because these Christians in the first century were being persecuted for their faith. Peter, James, and John, they all knew what it meant to face the hostility of an unloving world. And they were all riding the heels of that great example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved so sacrificially and so willingly and so abundantly. And they saw that modeled in Christ and they said, this is an important thing, that we show love for one another. And it is also true that there is a very real danger that we as Christians face, the danger of our hearts growing cold toward one another. That's a real danger, isn't it? When we are forced to fellowship with one another and hang out with one another and commune with one another and serve together, then we are confronted with each other's failures and sins and foibles and shortcomings and idiosyncrasies. And there's always the danger that our hearts toward one another might grow cold because some of us are not very lovable. And you know the person, and you're, you can think of it, you just think, that's just not a very lovable person. He's a Christian, but he's not very lovable. Now listen, every time you find somebody that's not very lovable, it should remind you that there's somebody out there who thinks you're not very lovable. You say, no, not me. I'm lovable. After all, I never see any of these people who think I'm unlovable. Exactly. You never see them, do you? Why might that be? 
because they think you're unlovable. They don't want to hang out with you. Our hearts can grow cold toward one another. Our hearts can can go grow in toward each other, and we think it's it's easier to it's easier to sort of turn inward and become inwardly focused and not want to love each other because love requires a, a certain vulnerability towards other people that we can be hurt and we can be harmed by people who we expect to love and we've come to love and we want to love and we want to receive love from them. So there is this repeated command that you are to love one another. We are to love one another. Why? Because it is very easy for our hearts to grow cold. It's very important that we obey this commandment. And what happens if I don't love another Christian? What happens if I don't love others? Would that be a sin? That's the violation of a commandment, isn't it? I have no excuse for not loving you. I mean, you might try and give me excuses to not love you, but I have no excuse for not loving you. Another person is a believer. I, I must love you. That is the commandment. And it might be difficult for us to love some people, but that doesn't alleviate us from that commandment. It doesn't take us out from underneath that responsibility to love one another and to show love for one another, as difficult as it might be for even people that we think are unlovable or that are difficult to love. We still have that responsibility to love one another. So what happens when I fall short of not loving somebody like I should love them? I recognize that that is sin, and I repent of that, and I handle it just like any other sin. I turn from it, and I pray that the Lord might produce that fruit in my life. And remember that love is a fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And so as a branch connected to the vine, I want the fruit of love to be hanging on me, and I want to produce that. I want that to be evident in my life. I want that to be evident in the lives of the people around me, trusting that it is the Spirit of God who produces that fruit in the true branch who is connected to the vine. And so I turn from my unloving attitude and I confess it to the Lord and I purposefully, diligently mortify that sin of being unloving as best as I can by the grace of the Spirit of God. I attack that sin like I attack the sin of lust or attack the sin of pride or attack the sin of selfishness or gossip or any other sin. I mortify that sin and I put it to death and I pray that the Lord might produce that grace in me to be more loving towards those who are in Christ as well, that we might love one another. And there are obviously extremes to this and we want to avoid the extremes. Sometimes we think that in order to be loving, we have to somehow compromise the truth. That there, as if there's this spectrum between being the really lovey-dovey person and being the person who loves the truth and stands on the truth and is orthodox. And there's no conflict between true biblical love and orthodoxy. And sometimes people think that they're in conflict, that they're at loggerheads. And if I'm going to be really orthodox and sound in doctrine, that's going to mean that I have to compromise being loving. Not necessarily true. Or that if I'm going to be really loving, I'm going to have to sort of compromise the truth a little bit in my orthodoxy. And maybe some of you are thinking, oh, I knew it. I knew Jim was going to go soft. Now he's talking about the love. I knew the time would come when we would find out that he's nothing more than a Birkenstock wearing, free trade coffee drinking, Soy latte, tree hugging, earth worshiping, liberal. And today he's talking about love, and next week it's going to be tolerance, and the week after that, how we're not supposed to judge one another, and before long he's going to be preaching in sandals and hemp shorts. I just knew, I just knew that it was coming. Now listen, there is no, you do not have to sacrifice orthodoxy to be loving, nor do you have to sacrifice love to be orthodox. The two are not in conflict. We think of these as being extremes, like one person over on this side wringing their hands constantly and saying, oh, I just, man, I, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I just want to love on them. And I wish I didn't have to tell them that was wrong or that what they're thinking is wrong or that what they're feeling is wrong or what they're doing is wrong. I just, I don't want to, that whole truth thing just makes me very uncomfortable. I don't want to take a stand on that because then they might get their feelings hurt. And on the other side of the extreme is the person who says, 
look, you idiot, don't you understand that me being right is the way I show my love for you? So pull your head out of the sand and screw it on straight, would you? And start thinking straight like us? Might I suggest to you that between those two poles is a biblical notion of love? That we can be both speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love? That we can correct those who are in opposition and do it in a loving way? They're not at loggerheads. We don't have to compromise either one of them. In fact, the most loving thing in the world is to be sound in doctrine. Because if you're sound in doctrine and you're loving, then what you want is other people to know the truth and to believe the truth and to love the truth and to stand in the truth because the truth is the most loving thing. They're not at, op- they're not at odds. They, they, they go together and they go together well and they are perfect. Uh, we want people to know the truth. We want people to love the truth. And so we are truthful and we are honest and we are orthodox and we are biblical and we need to be right and need to be sound in doctrine, but then at the same time, love one another. Look, being orthodox in the truth is an expression of love for my brother. But so is being compassionate and being gracious and kind and patient and gentle and sharing with one another and bearing one another's burdens and praying for one another and serving with one another and serving one another. All of those are also expressions of true biblical love. So we we want to have all of that as a full-orbed picture of what it means to love one another. J.C. Ryle summed it up well when he said this, He that supposes that he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct, while he is unloving in his temper and sharp, cross, snappish, and ill-natured in the use of his tongue, exhibits wretched ignorance in the first principles of Christ's gospel. That's true. And in our day, we need to be reminded that the opposite is also true. The one who thinks that he can be kind and compassionate and gracious and loving while denying the truth and ignoring the truth and not standing for the truth also does not understand the first principles of Christ's gospel. So there is that command that you love one another. And now look at the example of that love in verse 13. Greater love, uh, sorry, just as I have loved you. It's the end of verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. That is the example of love. We are to love one another just as Christ has loved us. Now that is a that is a daunting command, is it not? That I'm to love you just the way Christ loved me? It, in one sense, I, I never hope to ever be able to attain that. I know that I will never be able to love anybody perfectly, as long as I am in this flesh. But that is my goal, and that should be our goal, to love one another just as Christ has loved us. How has He loved us? What are the expressions of His love? We get some examples of that even here in this passage. Just look over verses 13 through 16. We are told, He laid down His life for us, for His friends. That's an expression of His love. The fact that He calls us friends is an expression of His love. The fact, verse 14, that we are no longer called slaves, that is an expression of His love. The fact that He has revealed to us what He as our Master is doing, and He has revealed to us the Father and the truth, that is an expression of His love. Verse 16 that His choosing us, not only to, to salvation, but also to service, is an expression of His love. That He has appointed us to go and bear fruit. That He has promised that whatever we ask in the uh, Father's name, or in His name, the Father will grant to us. That is an expression of His love. Sandwiched between those two commandments are all of these ways in which the Lord has expressed His love to us. So how are we to love one another? We are to love one another in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us. And then He gives us all of these examples of love, the things that He has done for us. And when you look at the characteristics of His love, you find, first of all, that He loved us first. John says, by by this we love, not that we loved Him, but He first loved us. 
we are able to love one another and we love Him because He first loved us. So in terms of time, who loved whom first? The Lord loved us first because when He loved me, I wasn't even born. So I know that He loved me first. And I know that He loved me while I was yet His enemy. And while I was hostile against Him in my mind through wicked works. And while I was an idolater. And when I hated Him and I hated the light and I wanted nothing to do with Him, He still loved me. He loved me before I could ever love Him. He loved me before I could ever love Him. Before I could ever love anybody. Before I could ever love. He loved me. He loved me first. Second, He loved us, undes- he loved us, loved us undeservingly. We were undeserving. Is there anybody in this room that can say, yeah, when the Lord loved me, I was completely worthy and deserving of His love? None of us can say that. We were eminently undeserving and unlovable, and yet He loved us still. Even loved us while we were His enemies. And He loved us perfectly and completely and fully. This is what John means when he says in chapter 13, verse 1, Behold, the feast of the Passover had come. Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And that phrase means to the completeness, to the fullness. He loved them to the infinite degree, to a degree of perfection. So He loved me first. He loved me while I was undeserving. He loved me fully and completely and perfectly. And then John's point here is that He loves us sacrificially. That He laid down His life for His friends. We'll get to that issue of friends and what that means and how that is an expression of His love. We'll deal with that next week. But what I want you to notice here is how His death for us, His death on the cross is an expression of His love for us. And Scripture repeatedly says this, that His sacrifice for us is a demonstration of His love. Ephesians 5, verse 2, we are to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. John, again, in 1 John 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Notice the connection between the love of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Now the sacrifice on the cross as an expression of love would be nothing if it were only an expression of love. In fact, if you view His sacrifice on the cross, His death on the cross, as only an expression of love, it's actually not loving at all. There's something else that has to be in play there. Namely, that it is a substitutionary death on the cross. It is because He gave His life for in place of, in the stead of His friends. That is what makes His death on the cross loving. The fact that it was a sacrifice. Imagine that you're standing at the top of a cliff and you're enjoying the view and looking out over it with your wife and and some guy walks up beside you you've never even seen before and he looks you right in the eye and says, I love you, and to show you how much I love you, boom, he jumps off the cliff to his own death. Do you think that that's loving? No, that's crazy. That's stupid. That's not loving. And that's not an expression of love. Some people think that's what Jesus did. He wanted to show us how much He loved us. So He died on the cross to show what suffering and love was all about. It's more than that. It's not just an innocent man dying. It is an innocent man dying in place of his friends. It is an innocent man dying the death that his friends deserved to die. That's what demonstrates the love. It is the propitiatory, that's satisfaction. It is his, his vicarious, that means willing. And it is his substitutionary death that is the demonstration of His love. That His death was a substitution. And this is the reality that is expressed all the way through the New Testament 
When the authors speak of the death of Christ, they don't just hold it out as, oh yeah, it was death, it was a great, it was a glorious death, but rather that he died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of his sheep and the place of his church. Again, from 1 Peter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for, that is, in place of, the sheep. John 10, 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the great exchange over which all of Scripture is written. That God would take Christ who was sinless and knew no sin and make Him to be sin in our stead. That He would die in our place as a substitution for we who deserve to die that death. That He would treat a righteous man as if that righteous man were a sinner so that He can treat sinners not as sinners but as if they were righteous men. That is the exchange of the gospel. That He would give His life for His friends, for His sheep. It is not just His death, which is an expression of love. It is the substitutionary nature of His death, which is an expression of love. That that one who was perfect, the just, died in the place of the unjust. That He bore our sins in His body on the tree. That He suffered the wrath of God for our sin on that cross. That is what makes it an act of love. That He would die, and not just die, but die for, in the place of, in the stead of His friends. That is love. That is love. Not just a Galilean carpenter hanging on a cross. That's no expression of love. But the Son of God bearing the wrath of the Father in the place of His sheep, His bride, of all those whom the Father has given to Him, so that He might pay their debt, call them to Himself, that they would behold Him and believe, and He would give them eternal life, and that they would never perish, and that He would raise them up on the last day. That is the ultimate expression of love. Now, is it ever possible for you and I to atone for somebody else's sins? We can never do that. Nor can we ever atone for our own sins. So we're never going to be able to demonstrate love in that way. In in, in that sense, it's, it's a completely unachievable standard. But what we ought to strive for is loving one another. Loving one another to such an extent that if called upon, we would be willing to sacrifice our life for our brother. To love some, to love each other to the point that we would be willing to sacrifice anything for that person. That's the standard of love. To love each other just as He has loved us. First John, verse 4, says this, But the love of God was manifested to us in that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the command. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for the expressions of your love to us in the person of Christ and what he has done. And this is a high and holy standard, but it is a standard to which we are to strive to attain. And we pray that you would produce that fruit, striving after that virtue in our lives, that we might abundantly produce the fruit of love, love for one another, love for you, and love for the truth, that the love that we have might be an expression of biblical love which begins with a love for the truth and then is expressed toward other people. May you give to us that sacrificial love. Give us love for one another and love for your people and that it may and, and opportunities to express that love. Thank you that that virtue is here present in this body of Christ and it is there in abundant measure, but we pray that you would give us grace to exceed 
exceedingly excel at that still more and more, that that might become more and more a part of our life and our character as we demonstrate the nature of Christ. Thank you that by your word and through your Holy Spirit, you give us the power to do this and that you continue to conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.